You may not remember Wadia Al-Fayumi's name, but I guarantee you, you remember his story. You first heard about him in October. The war in Gaza had just started. There'd been one image after another coming out of the Middle East, of children killed. And then there was another kind of image here at home. This is one of the last pictures taken of Wadia Al-Fayumi, who just a couple of weeks ago celebrated his sixth birthday. His life was brutally taken away yesterday morning at his home in unincorporated Plainfield after he was stabbed 26 times with a military-style knife. 71-year-old Joseph Chuba was accused of stabbing the boy and his mother for their Muslim faith. Or authorities say the landlord knocked on their door and before the attack said that they should die for their beliefs. Whether you scrolled past an article about Wadia online or came across a news report, most every story was accompanied by the same picture of Wadia in a paper party hat and a plaid shirt. It looked like he'd just unwrapped a stack of presents. This picture, it stopped Slate's Eamon Ismail in his tracks. Yeah, what what happened to Wadia is particularly heartbreaking because there's this expectation that in this country we're relatively safe. And now it feels like the threat of death was real here in America. Eamon's a dad, a Muslim, too. Pretty much right away, he started wondering about Wadia, who he was, how he died so young. But Wadia's story soon got drowned out by so many other tragedies. The news cycle at that point was moving so quickly that it almost felt like, okay, that was horrifying. This next story coming out of Gaza is also horrifying. This other story coming out of uh, the Kibbutz Beiri was also horrifying. It was just horrifying after horrifying. So it was just this cyclone of just depressing, horrible, awful news. Hmm. Did most of the news coverage of what happened in Chicago seem complete? To you? No, it didn't feel complete. Um, it was missing everything. <laughs> I mean, this, this family, they were Palestinian, uh, but they were also American. And, and I wish that we, we saw a little bit more of that kind of reporting on the ground right away. Eamon decided to do that kind of reporting himself. Today on the show, what Eamon found when he visited a family experiencing unimaginable grief. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. I'm wondering if we can retell the story of what happened to Wadi Al-Fayumi and his mother, Hanan. I guess we should start by just explaining where Hanan and Wadiya were living. Because that really shaped the relationship they had with their landlord, Joseph Kazuba. You know, it's an incredibly American story. Hanan, the mom, she uh, moved to Chicago about two years before Wadiya was born uh, through another marriage. She's from the West Bank, right? Yeah, she's from the West Bank in this uh, village just south of Ramallah. And uh, she was grew up in a like a very quaint and beautiful idyllic farm out uh, in a suburb in the West Bank, just south of Ramallah. 
And the way she described it, it was so beautiful. She talked about how she spent a lot of time on her family's farm and they grew everything from onions to tomatoes to olives. Yeah, we have like uh, many kind of peaches and uh, grapes, yes, yes, and grapes and uh, figs and olives. It's family business and uh, yes. And, you know, she really liked her life there. She had a lot of siblings. And when she got older, uh, it just sort of felt like it was her turn to get married. And when somebody came from Chicago and asked for her hand, she was like, okay, this, this feels right. I'll leave my life here and I'll move to Chicago. That first marriage, which brought Hanan to the U.S., it didn't last. When it ended, Hanan met Ade Al-Fayumi, Wadia's father. They hit it off, got married. Once Wadia was born, though, Hanan realized what she really wanted was to be on her own. So she and Ade split, but they kept raising Wadia together, which is how Hanan ended up living with Joseph Kazuba, who was renting out space in his home for only $300 a month. Obviously, she was making a lot of concessions. She didn't have her own kitchen. She didn't have her own living room. She was renting out two rooms and a, and a bathroom, essentially, uh, from this owner-occupied house. So, you know, she wasn't so excited about that. She she also felt like it was necessary so that she can sustain her kid and, and give her kid the toys that he wanted. She described him as such a happy little boy, Wadia, this dancing, singing, like little angel who really enjoyed playing with cars and balls. And so she really actually enjoyed her life, uh, as far as I could tell, even though she was under all this pressure and was living out on her own out of this house where she would regularly describe the landlord as angry and would be playing right-wing media uh, really loudly and, and responding to it angrily. So, you know, she, she also describes her son as being patient and having a lot of patience with the landlord, which is all tragic because we all know how this story ends. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they were living in such tight quarters. It was like almost impossible for them not to just constantly interact with each other, I imagine. They interacted every day. You know, in order for her to get into her space, she, they walked into the same door as the landlord did for his own home. She walked through the kitchen that they shared, and they walked through the living room, and then they walked into their space. Um, and so it was very much like they were sharing this house together. How strange to, like, sh- share a house with this person who's so angry. It just must have felt tense. Yeah, but, but on top of that, Joe was also, the landlord was also really nice to the son. So he would like make things out of scrap wood for him. Like he made a little stage for him to perform and like do dances and sing songs on. Uh, he installed a pool in his backyard, even though he didn't swim. It was specifically just for the boy to play in. He set up a whole treehouse. Like it, it's a put a put a lot of labor of love towards this young boy. Uh, and they had a great relationship. When when I asked her about it, I mean the the little boy used to call him grandpa. Huh. So what happened on October 14th? You know, to hear Hanan tell it, it almost feels like something just snapped, like a flip just got switched. And, you know, she she said that when the war started, they hadn't they talked about it a little bit and that he would be angry towards her and ask her to fix the war and say, uh, to do something. That's what she would say. Is he was asking me to do something about this war. The news, uh, he's listening to news and he's judging me for the news. It's, it's like, you know, 
I told you about the war between uh, your people, uh, Muslim and Israel, and you're not doing anything about it. He wants me to do anything. And she would tell him that I was praying for peace, but that didn't seem to satisfy him. And so one day, when she was in her private space with her son, she was getting her son ready for a bath, and then she hears a knock at the door, so she goes to answer it, and Joe's there. And sort of starting the same argument again. Why aren't you doing more for Palestine? Uh, why aren't you doing more? Uh, why, when will your people stop killing Israelis? Like being very hostile and sort of accusatory. And then when she told him the same thing, that she was praying for peace, that's when he pulled out a knife and repeatedly stabbed her in the abdomen, in the arms, and she would fight back, but he had her pinned. And she was able to fight him off enough to tell him, hey, it's okay. Let's just both go to the hospital. And at that point, he got up, left her bleeding on the floor, and left the space. And she sat down for a minute, and in those moments, she was thinking to herself that this was it, that she was going to die. I mean, she'd been stabbed 12 times, and she summoned the strength somehow to get up on her feet, lock the door, and call the police. What she didn't expect, though, was that Joe Kazuba had gotten back into the space somehow quietly and got to the sun and also um, you know, stabbed him 26 times with the same military knife. But she didn't know what had happened until she left the bathroom um, after she was done calling the police. And then she saw her son. you know. And as a parent, you can't even fathom what that experience must have been like. Um, yeah. I mean, she, you describe this really harrowing detail that, you know, eventually... Hanan and her son are both brought to the hospital, and Hanan is instructing a nurse there, like, here's how to care for my son in case she didn't survive. Yeah. And she also gave the, the same nurse the, the phone number for Joe Kazuba's wife, who had been at work at that time, and so that she could be warned about what had happened, so that she wouldn't just stumble onto the scene herself. Like, she's just thinking about anything other than herself in this moment. It's It's kind of incredible. Yeah. It sounds like Joe Kazuba had shown anti-Arab, anti-Muslim sentiments in the past, and there had been these signs that things weren't right, like Hanan knew that he abused his wife, that he got weird when he got angry, and that he was concerned that there was this day of jihad that had been planned for that week. Why do you think she stayed in his home anyway? I mean, I can only speculate, but I can imagine it being really difficult to get up and move your whole life when you're just not financially stable, you know? Um, it's just too much to ask, I think, for someone to to get up and move their life when they are being confronted with those kinds of sentiments because they really are everywhere. You know, uh, if I got up and left every time somebody said something racist to me or anything, I would be on the edge of the earth. Huh. When you visited her, Hanan's reaction to you as a reporter was so striking to me. Like she, you noticed that she couldn't stop laughing, which seemed to me like a shock reaction. Like she's just lost her son in this awful way. She herself has been attacked. Is that how you thought of it as shock or did you think of it as something else? No, I thought of it as something else, to be honest. Well, first I asked people who knew her what she was like before all this, and they sort of described her as the same way. as just jolly, happy, loves to make people smile, loves to make people laugh, 
So in my opinion, I mean, I asked her up front, like, why did you say yes to this interview when you said no to all other interviews? And she said she felt a responsibility to let people know that she was okay. And she also said something else that was really striking. She said that she felt a responsibility to, to show Americans that Muslims were capable of love in the face of hate. Always, we must uh, tell people here that Muslims have love and peace and they can be kind and, you know, to share their love and peace uh, with the people, we, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and why not? Uh, so I will talk. And, and that frankly really broke my heart. Right. Because that's heavy. I'm I'm Muslim American, too. And I know that when you're put in a situation where the correct or the rational response could be anger or grief, you almost feel like you're still an ambassador for your whole faith, for this whole community that's been instructed to feel like you are the one who is going to act on that anger violently. So even when you're the victim of violence, you still need to show restraint uh, because you don't want to reinforce those stereotypes and give people more reason to make life more difficult, not just for you, but for your whole community, for your whole kin. And I, I really understood what she was saying there was that even in this moment of unbelievable loss, this tragedy, this life-changing, life-altering tragedy, that she still felt like she needed to be a representative for all Muslims. Was that sad to you? Yeah, it is, you know, because I get it. Uh, I, I saw a lot of the same in my mom, you know. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I remember a little kid in the in the grocery store making his finger into a gun and shooting like air bullets at my mom and then running to his parents and cheering, saying, I shot the terrorist. And my mom hearing it and, and me being like, what the hell? And my mom being like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. We have to show them that we're kind. And so this is something that my mom would say all the time, that you needed to show the, the, the people who weren't Muslim that Muslims were capable of love too. And it, and it kind of pisses me off, honestly, that this mom still feels this responsibility to show that these, these right-wing reporters and the, the people who are trying to gin up hysteria about Muslims for votes, these same people are, we still need to counter their narrative, even in our worst moments, even after we lose our kids. And you see the same thing happening in, in Gaza, right? With uh, the people holding up their dead bodies of their children for the camera so the world could see that their grief is real and that these aren't just human shields or these aren't just, you know, X, Y, Z, fill in whatever rationale you want. These are kids. And these parents are actually crying real tears, you know? We'll be right back after a break. While you were in Chicago, you also visited with Wadia's father, Ode Afayumi. He was not there when his son was killed. He, he found out from a call from the police, which seemed to really upset him. And his reaction seemed so different from Hanan's. Can you tell me about that contrast? Yeah. Um, so I met with Ode in his home, um, you know, and I, I immediately knew where I was because I recognized the shelves on the background and from the, from the pictures of Wadia from his last birthday uh, when he turned six years old that week before he was killed. And, you know, I could see in his eyes right away that he had been crying all day. 
And I, I, you know, as a reporter, it almost feels like you're intruding, like you shouldn't be talking to this person in their worst moment, but this is also what you need to show. And this is the real, the rawness that the readers need to be informed of because this is what they're going through. Yeah. So he was allowing himself to feel the sadness in a way that his ex-wife was not. Was he allowing himself to feel anger as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of what we talked about was how, you know, how unexpected this was, but also what justice would look like for his son as well. I mean, he wants Joe Kazuba to be made as an example of. He talked about how he wanted uh, Joe Kazuba to be executed, and after his execution, that day be turned into Odiyal Fayumi Day, where people would celebrate. Oh, wow. And I understood that. I understood that. And there's no wrong or right way to experience this kind of grief, but it, it, it all just felt real to me that this person was constantly thinking about this, that this person uh, feels robbed of their dream. You know, he talked about how he'd wanted a son his whole life. And since he was a little boy, he had told his dad that he wanted to be named Wadia. Huh. And so his whole family nicknamed him Abu Wadia. Abu Wadia's father of Wadia. Yeah. Basically telling him that when he was older, he can name his own kid that name. And so when he did have his own son, it was a no-brainer. Even his wife, Hanan, was like, we have to name him Wadia. It just been destiny for him, for the father. And the whole reason he'd come to this country was to create a better, brighter future for his kids. Like He actually had a pretty comfortable life in Jordan where he grew up, where he had his own business. He had a really nice car. He was an interior designer. He was right? an interior designer. Yeah, he had a home that he had paid off. You know, So he was one of the lucky ones. But he still left all that behind because he didn't want his son to be rolling the same dice and uh, and and you know maybe he'll be well off maybe he won't be his hypothetical son at that point and so you could tell just from you know this tragedy it wasn't just that he had lost his son as awful and ginormous as that is he lost his purpose for being there you know he'd lost his purpose for even coming to the country he'd lost his purpose for you know existence and. You can see the depression in his eyes, the depression in the way that he walked, the way that he sat down. He didn't make eye contact with me. You could tell that he was just empty on the inside, hollowed by what had happened. And he he drives as an Uber driver now. And so he's he's talked about how he can't really bring himself to go to work because people recognize him and they ask him about Joe Kazuba and they ask him about Odia. And it's just, it, it's a never ending nightmare for him. But he goes to work anyways because he needs to earn money. And, you know, you, you could just tell that this is the beginning of a new life for both him and the mom. Uh, that this doesn't the story doesn't just end with the with the, the brutal killing of their son. This is their new life after their son. Before you left, Wadia's father, Ade, he t- he told you that he plans to attend Joseph Kazuba's trial as much as he can. What do you think he's hoping to get from that experience? You know, it's hard to say. Um, He didn't even know when I asked him that. He just said justice. And I asked him what justice looks like. And he said that that's in the hands of the the courts and that he has faith in the courts. (sighs) I don't know, man. It's, It's tragic. I can't even begin to put myself in his shoes. Um, I just know that he wants... Joe Kazuba to feel his pain 
like any other father would in this moment. And I think he wants not just, he doesn't want to just show up and, and show Kazuba his, his pain, but he wants to like bring a lot of Muslims around. And one of the sentiments that I heard from the funeral that I thought was very powerful was that Joe Kazuba, when he stabbed Wadia, stabbed our whole community. He stabbed Muslims and Arabs and Palestinians everywhere. And that he only stabbed Wadia and the mom because those were the, the, the ones that he can get his hands on. You know? And so what I think Aday wants is I think he wants defiance in that kind of violence. I think he wants not he wants a crowd of Muslims and Arabs, and not just Muslims and Arabs, but everybody to show up in defiance of that kind of hate at the court and show Joe Kazuba that he's outnumbered in a way. Yeah. I wonder how he thinks about the United States now. He definitely is sick of the hypocrisy. That's another thing that we talked about was uh, the fact that his tax dollars are going to kill his own people in the form of military aid to Israel. And so he, when we talked about how when Biden called him and Biden cried on the phone because he was trying to show his pain and talk about how he lost his son too, they kind of rolled his eyes. You know, he was like, if he really understood the pain that he wouldn't be supporting Israel's massacre of Palestinians. You know, and I think, I think this is the thing that a lot of Arabs and Muslims are thinking about right now. You know, this, the support that we're giving to the massacre of helpless people is, is painful, you know, and is the bombs keep falling that are, that are made in America and being given to Israel for free so that they can use being used against like these kids. It's hard to take their compassion for Wadia seriously. Because it, it it almost doesn't make sense to him that somebody could be sympathetic towards him as a father who lost his son while at the same time supporting the the many Wadiyas that are being massacred in Gaza, creating a lot more grief. And, you know, if their father survived, you know, that's sort of the same pain. He sees it. He he described Wadiya as being uh, a martyr for the same cause. And I, I think he wants other people to see it that way, too. Amen. I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for bringing this story back. It's, it's something that I really hope that stays in the minds of people moving forward. Amen Ismail is a staff writer at Slate. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here next time.